looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Let me go ahead and read this for us. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark in the past few months, and uh, we've seen how much of the first half was about the, the person and identity of Christ, right? Who is he? And the, the climactic point of that is um, Peter, uh, one of the main disciples, uh, making the profession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? End of Act 1. And Act 2 opens up, and since then what we've been looking at has a lot to do with um, what does it mean to follow this Christ? Um, what are the implications of being discipled into the life and ministry of Christ? And last week, we definitely looked at a significant passage that entails, you know, what, what does it mean to, to follow Christ? It means you cut off sin in your life. Well, today, we also get into another aspect of this implication. And here, the discipleship of Christ as it, as it turns out, even reaches into something as intimate and as personal as our marriage. Jesus is saying, let me tell you what your marriage is all about. Okay. He claims even that. He claims ownership and lordship over our marriage. Now, when you know, modern people uh, hear that, um, they can right, find that extremely invasive right, or intrusive you know, because that's my domain, right? If there's anything in my life that I'm going to claim total ownership over, it's my marriage, right? It's who I love, how I love, and how I manage that. So kind of, you know, back off Jesus, right? But you can tell from, from what Jesus is saying here um, that that seems to be different in a Christian worldview. But here's what I want to submit to you. I want to submit this to you before we continue, and it's this, this idea, the fact that you have to be discipled into a certain understanding of marriage is not, it's not unique to Christianity. The fact that you have to be trained into a certain worldview that processes marriage in a certain way and indoctrinate you, as it were, in a certain way about marriage is not unique to Christian faith. Uh, it's common to all of us. It's universal. I, I heard an episode on Hidden Brain. I don't know if you guys like podcasts, but... Hidden Brain is, is one of the ones I, I might recommend. 
And they had this uh, social psychologist come on uh, from Northwestern, and his name is Eli Finkel. And he had just written this book titled, The All or Nothing Marriage. The All or Nothing Marriage. And he came on the show to talk about his book, and he, he, he makes this observation. He makes the observation that modern marriages have become incredibly difficult to sustain, right? Because year after year, you get the report card, it's like 50%, right? That's an F, right? Year after year, that's your GPA. Why? He attributes that to this cause. Marriage today, unlike the, the you know, good old days, the 60s and the 70s, is no longer merely a search for love. But it's gone beyond that to being a search for personal fulfillment and self-actualization. And that means marriage has to provide, in addition to love, a sense of meaning and fulfillment and identity in your life. That's a new bar that we've set for marriage in our 21st century postmodern culture. And, and how's that been working out for us? Not well, right? That high bar only leads to greater disappointment, greater disillusionment. Right? It's such a high mountain that when people get to the top, when they reach the summit, they're not liberated by getting up there. They, they find themselves suffocating due to a lack of oxygen. So he calls that, he causes the suffocation model. And, and then he mentions another uh, therapist named Esther Perel, who diagnosed this problem in modern marriage this way. She said, quote, today we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and all as well. Give me comfort, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, give me surprise. And we think it's a given. We think it's a given that when you find you know, the one, all of this will be handed to you. And if you're like me, Growing up, this is actually not too far at all from you know, my initial understanding or perception of marriage either. I wasn't immune to this perception. You know, growing up, I thought this was exactly what I would experience. This is what marriage would give me, a total fulfillment. Right? And I totally believe you know, that line in Jerry Maguire, you know, you complete me. Right? If I find the one, I can honestly look that person in the face and say, you complete me in every way, and I'll, I'll be lacking in nothing. It's basically marriage as a promised land, marriage as a paradise, I'll have everything I need if I just get married, or at least married to the right person. And again, and this is beyond biblical literature, this is in social psychology now, that only leads to greater disappointment and greater disillusionment. When you make marriage about something that you should draw from, a bigger thing than that one person. And now my point here though is this, how did all this come to be? And the answer is, we were discipled into it. We were taught this, we were trained into this. We were immersed in this culture, this concept of marriage, through our surroundings, through the people around us, through the culture around us, through the media around us, we've been accustomed to it. And, and everybody, secular or religious, wherever you're on the spectrum, atheist or, or Christian, there is a discipleship program that you subscribe to, that you live by, and you may not call it that, but it's certainly a certain set of values that you live by that you become accustomed to, largely because you believe that's what's conducive to your happiness. We all have that. We all have this system set of beliefs. This is not just how Christians operate, it's how everybody operates. So the question is not, 
whether you have a disciple maker in your life, the question is who is it? The question is what? What is your disciple maker? What is your discipleship program and how's that working out for you? Who or what is telling you this archetypal story of marriage that you must conform to, in other words? And what Mark shows us here is from verse one, Jesus here is accustoming his disciples to a new story of marriage. Because it says here at the end of verse one, right? And again, as was his custom, Jesus' custom, he taught them, right? Jesus taught his disciples as a customary thing. Why? So that they would be accustomed to his teachings. Unlearn the things that they should unlearn and learn the things that they should learn. I heard someone put it like this. Jesus didn't come to his disciples so he could enter their story. He came to them, he went to them so that they would enter into his and that's where we get the story of marriage from Jesus' discipleship program. And from that, what we also get is the principles that ground the marriage and the hope we need to sustain this earthly, temporary marriage. But it starts with this. It starts with re-entering God's story for our marriage. And so let's t- take a look at that first. Well, f- let's take a look at what is this archetypal story of marriage that Jesus is telling us here. Take a look at verse two. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, they came to test him. How is this a test? Well, there was a provision in Deuteronomy chapter 24 uh, that talks about how a man can give the woman a certificate of divorce uh, if he wanted to separate from her. Um, and the reasons were somewhat vague in that context, but you have to harmonize it with the rest of Scripture, and it's not so vague. It's in the case of you know, adultery or, or, or desertion and things like that. But in this case, in, in, that, in that context, in that passage, the language was uh, if, if the wife doesn't find favor in the husband's eyes or if there's indecency in the wife. But the provision was actually given so that the woman actually had a certificate of divorce because during this time, uh, a woman who becomes unmarried for whatever reason, right, lacks that legal protection. And that certificate of divorce means this man that I was married to, he repudiated this marriage, and this protects me. This gives me, in a way, the right to remarry as well. And it was a provision, in a way, to protect women from the men who were sort of carelessly repudiating marriages. But here's what happens. Certain men started to twist the meaning of this provision to mean men can divorce women for pretty much anything, anything they want. Okay? I don't like her food. Okay? I don't like her looks. I don't like her tone. I'm going to divorce her. All you have to do is sign a certificate. That's what it became over time. And the Pharisees were behind that, behind that misinterpretation, as they often are. They're always behind some misinterpretation of the law. Now, here's the test. What if Jesus comes in and says, that's wrong, and their divorce is not permissible? What that would do is, that would give the Pharisees ammo to say, well, Jesus is contradicting Moses. He's not a true teacher of the law. He's teaching something contrary to the law, and that was a pretty severe offense during this time. Uh, It's not just being identified as a false teacher, you'd be executed for being a false teacher. So there's that problem, but on the other hand, if Jesus says, yes, that's permissible, that's fine, then that will make him appear to side with the Pharisees, right? 
side with their teachings on marriage and divorce. So either way, it seems to be a win-win for the Pharisees. Either they really put Jesus down or elevate themselves by earning a vote from Jesus. That's why it's a test. It's a challenge against Jesus. So how does he respond? He asks this question. Jesus often does this. Right? He, he answers a question with a question. He asks, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? And the Pharisees say, Moses allowed divorce. The man just needs to sign a certificate of divorce. Now, I don't know if you caught that. Jesus asked, what was the command? And the Pharisees are talking about what is allowed. Right? One, one person is talking about what is commanded. The other person is talking about what is permitted, which are not the same things. In a way, the Pharisees are basically interested in what they can get away with, right? The negative aspect of the law. Jesus is talking about what they ought to be pursuing, the positive aspect of the law. Jesus is trying to refocus them here. What did God actually command you? Okay, focus on that. And with this added note, quote, it is because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. In other words, it was due to your rebellion against God, his design for marriage, his story behind marriage. Because of that rebellion, he made room for this provision right? in a way to protect the sin from, from becoming any more serious than it already is. And, and throughout scripture, we see again, the two clear cases where divorce is allowed by God are in cases of adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Divorce, therefore, it's sort of like a lesser of two evils, but it's not a good. And Jesus is trying to make that point. That's a false narrative there you're painting. Right? It's not just something you should be permitted to do because there's a different command that pursues something else. It, it, it's really, and, and this connects with our passage last week, divorce is really more like an amputation. It's, uh, it's, it's Herschel's leg getting cut off in The Walking Dead to keep the virus from going through, you know, permeating through the rest of his body. It's not something you take up liberally. It's not something you utilize at every turn. So you don't, for example, right, it would be malpractice if a doctor were to see uh, a, let's say, a wound on my arm that needs two stitches and says, let's just amputate the arm, right? Or I have a, I have a mosquito bite, let's amputate the arm. I mean, you don't, right, that would be malpractice. Um, it's, not, it's only something you reserve for the most severe cases, the most extreme circumstances. Right? And even then, even then it is a tragic loss that causes grief, that, that's reason to lament and mourn. It's not to be celebrated, it's not to be used liberally. Divorce is a tsunami of grief and fear and, and anger and guilt. And you have to see it for what it is. And Jesus is trying to, in a way, right, um, revealing the true sort of narrative the Pharisees are telling. It's not this naive and neutral sort of take on divorce. It's embellishing the something, very, something very painful, painting it as if it's not. See the story for what it is. It doesn't lead to human flourishing. It's not by God's design. Well, what is God's design? And, and then Jesus goes about telling the original story. 
Jesus goes on to say, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus goes back to the very beginning, beginning of creation, when everything, including marriage, was created. And remember what he said? God saw that it was very good. Very good. But Jesus takes us back to the very first benediction that God had ever given, that was pronounced upon humanity. It was at the very first wedding of humanity between Adam and Eve. Benediction literally means what? A good word, right? As opposed to what's the opposite of benediction? It's a malediction, a bad word, a, a curse, as it were. And some of us have grown up hearing, kind of like the Pharisees and the Jewish, of this, Jewish people of this time, hearing all sorts of maledictions against marriage, um, but not enough benedictions. God's benediction on marriage. It could be something that you heard from within your own household. It could be even your own parents. It could be from that celebrity couple that you really admired and looked up to and followed and you thought their their love will last, right? There's no way, right? Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie will ever break up, right? That That love is forever, right? Or it could be your friends, your coworkers. You've been given this malediction time and time again. Marriage is impossible. Divorce is inevitable. Marriage is impossible. Divorce is inevitable. That's a malediction. And over time, we've become accustomed to that story, that narrative. Really, we've become accustomed to it. Here, here's, here's an example. Have y'all seen the movie uh, Taken with Liam Neeson? Okay. How's that relevant? I, I promise you it's relevant. Um, so the movie opens up with the CIA, CIA agent, right, retired, former CIA agent, who's divorced. And he's you know, estranged from his wife, distant from his teenage daughter, right? And, and you see this picture of a broken family. And what the teenage daughter does is he tricks, in a way, deceives his father into signing a consent form so she can go on this Euro trip without his knowledge because she knows he'll never approve. And then she goes off on the Euro trip. Now, that's the first maybe 10, 15 minutes of the movie. What is the audience doing or thinking during that portion of the movie? Probably what I was thinking, like kind of arms crossed going, you know, when's the conflict actually coming? When, when's the problem actually going to surface? And then, right, the, was it Algerian terrorists, whatever, they come and they kidnap the daughter, right? And then, and then he picks up the phone and he's like, I'm going to find you, I'm going to kill you. That's when we're like, okay, finally, conflict. Thank you. I thought this was going to be a boring movie. Now there's finally a conflict because terrorists are in but with the divorce, with the, with the separate, the brokenness of the family, the deception between the father and the daughter, none of that appears to be problematic to us. We're still waiting. When's the conflict coming? Right? We become accustomed to it. We become numb to the, the brokenness of marriage and family. That's because of the malediction upon marriage in our culture. It's become a normative part of life. And for the Pharisees, yeah, the simple matter of signing a certificate of divorce 
repudiating the marriage, sending the wife away. It's become a norm. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's a different story. And he opens up the Bible, right? First book, first chapter. And he goes, see, marriage was always meant to be covered in and grounded in God's benediction. God instituted marriage. It's his design. He saw that it was very good. Are you seeing what I'm seeing here? Do you understand marriage along this storyline, this narrative? Are you discovering his presence in that marriage? Or are you going against the grain of his design and seeing marriage absent God? Right? He's refocusing. He's refocusing the Pharisees. You have to see marriage in the context, in the context of God's story, and that means seeing it within his blessing, his benediction, his good word, his good design and good intentions for your marriage. If you start there, we're ready for point two, the principles, the principles of marriage. Once you see that there is this third person in your marriage, the one who blesses your marriage, who, who defines it, who commands you, in it, it's easy to go to him and draw the principles for your marriage. And that's what we get from verse seven and on. Take a look at verse seven. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, there are a lot. We can probably spend the whole month drawing principles from, from these couple of verses. And those of you who've been going through you know, pre-engagement counseling, premarital, um, we have covered quite a few of them. For today, I just want to highlight one for the sake of time, okay? And make this brief point. And that is this, this principle. Committing before becoming. Committing comes before becoming. When it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that's talking about the marital commitment, right? The covenant. It makes a man and a woman husband and wife, right? That's what a marriage vow does. When you stand before God and you vow to be husband and wife, it's, it's done. Once and for all, you're husband and wife. Now, notice this. It's after this commitment to one another, right? And, and it takes the man away from his father and mother so that he can hold fast to this woman now, his wife. It's after that, it says, the two shall become, become one flesh. It's not, let's see if the two can become one flesh. Then, if they do, okay, you can hold fast to one another. Okay, let's see if they become one and then make the commitment. It's not that, right? The principle is this, the husband and the wife are to, are to commit to one another and then go about becoming one relationally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. They become one after the I do. And does that mean you should just randomly pick anyone to say I do? No, there are essential questions you need to ask. Hence, hence pre-engagement and pre-counseling. So, so, so talk to me if you need that. But the general outline of marriage, the structure of marriage is you make the commitment and then comes the becoming. Another way to put this is you make the promise, you make the promise, then comes the passion. And you will hear this time and time again, right? Uh, the reverse doesn't work. 
you chase after a passionate relationship, and then you somehow want to land in a, in a, in a relationship that's, that's worthy of your promise, and then somehow keep your promise uh, in that sort of long-term relationship, it's not going to work that way. It always works the other way around. You stick to the promise, you stick to the promise, you stick to the promise, and the passions, even they come and go, can be rekindled as you stick to the promise. The reverse just doesn't work. The promise comes before the passion. The commitment comes before the enjoyment. Um, think of it this way, right? None of you would hear, right? Say, I, I know, I know the, um, I know the incompatibility I will face at work with my coworkers. I may not get along with my boss. I may deal with a lot of stress. I may have to, you know, face a lot of anxiety and fears and whatever at work. Therefore, I'm never going to commit to a job. Right, no, none of you would say that, right? What do you do instead? You commit to a job, and you begin to mature in the way you handle stress and emotional life, right? You grow in your emotional intelligence and your social skills, right? You make the commitment first, then the growth begins. Marriage is not too different from that, right? You can't just say, I'm gonna see if, I can, if I'm physically, sexually compatible with this person, if I have all my areas of interest aligned, and if, let's say, this person is also aligned with me emotionally, personality, all these, and then I'll make the commitment. That doesn't work. You're bound to face differences. You're bound to see your passions go up and down like a roller coaster. What's going to hold that together? The commitment. The promise at the very foundations. That's the principle. This is not just some biblical mandate, this sort of, you know, archaic, religious, traditional mandate, it's extremely practical. If committing is placed before the becoming, then every investment, think about it, every investment you make in that relationship leads to becoming more and more one, and it makes it more meaningful and profitable as you go, but minus the commitment, minus the promise, however much investment you make, it could end up being nothing. It could end up being nothing. And Many of you have experienced this firsthand. I have experienced firsthand. When you go for the passion, when you go for the experience before the promise, you, you could be emotionally, physically, in every way, spiritually bankrupt at the end of the day. This is to protect you. This is a wisdom thing. This is not some archaic, religious, right, bigoted thing to, to, to restrict you from your you know, liberties. It's to protect you. It's a wisdom thing. That's why this whole thing about Bible forbidding premarital sex, you shouldn't cross physical boundaries during a dating relationship, during an engagement. It's a wisdom thing. It's to, it's to protect, not to restrict you, but protect you right, for the long term. Of course, yeah, it's pleasurable. It's awesome. Absolutely. Because it is, because it is so, God is helping you protect it. And, and, and you've, you've heard of this analogy. It's, it's not... God is not putting the fire out. He's putting the fire in the fireplace so that you can have it for a long time, warm you, and keep it safe. But when you take the fire out of the fireplace to places where it doesn't belong, where it's not safe, you burn the whole house down. Right? Taking the fire out of the fireplace is not the kind of freedom we want. And that is not what we want to see happen with our sexual intimacy. God's benediction over our sex life is this. Keep it within the safe confine of marriage and it will be very good. It will be very good. But take it out, you're playing with fire. You're playing with fire. You'll harm yourself, you'll harm others. 
here's a, here's a simpler way to put it. Don't give your whole body to someone you haven't given your whole life to. Don't give your whole body to someone that you have not given your whole life to. Make the commitment first, then proceed to enjoy the process of becoming more and more one. Emotionally, psychologically, sexually, and spiritually. Real quick, another additional sort of quick thing, quick principle that stems from this is not to be, the wisdom in not being unequally yoked, right? Being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And the reason for that, again, is not, this is not some bigoted statement about how Christians are better than the rest of the world, therefore Christians are just married Christians. That's not what this is. It's practical, and I would even say it's fair. It's fair to you and to your partner. And here's what I mean by that. It's really unfair to you and the person that you're with if your faith, that is such a core part of who you are, cannot be shared with someone you're meant to be one with. That's, that's a disservice to you and to that person. You're robbing each other of the oneness that is required inherently in marriage. Marriage is about oneness. It's about being totally naked with one another, not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually with one another, receiving one another for who they are. There are no secrets. There's no private worlds that we operate in. We're one. And that's why this... You, know, you always hit a roadblock when two people do not fundamentally share the same worldview, the same faith, or the same moral compass. Again, it's not a religious tradition thing, it's a wisdom thing. And, and having said that, I, I also say the Bible also talks about how it's possible for the, the non-Christian spouse to be made holy by the Christian spouse. That does happen. The Christian spouse has to be diligent in their prayer, in their discipleship, in their evangelism, in their family. But it's an uphill climb. It is an uphill climb. But if you're not yet married, right, that's for the people who are already married, but if you're not yet married and you're in such a relationship, that's what the Bible says. That's the first thing I'm going to say. I'm not telling you to do anything or this or that. That's what the Bible says. Do not be unequally open. And start there. Start with this practical warning from the scriptures, okay? Because it's a wisdom thing and, and it's not a, just a tradition thing. Um, now let me close with this final point about the hope of marriage. The Bible has something tremendously hopeful to say to those who have gone through something as painful as a divorce. And whether that's you or your parents or your siblings or your friends or your coworkers, I hope, I hope this will encourage you to encourage them. Encourage you or encourage you to encourage them. This is the hope of marriage. The Bible says that marriage is not ultimately about us. It doesn't end with us. The story of a marriage doesn't end with us. It ends with Christ and the church. The story of our marriage ends not with our marriage, but with the marriage between Christ and the church. Until you see that ending, you have not seen the ending. Okay. To look at your marriage and to conclude this is what my marriage is all about is sort of like sort of walking out of the theater after Infinity War going, that's it. <laughs> that's the end of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> there is no more hope. Right. That is not the end. 
Doctor Strange comes back. He's my favorite hero. He comes back and he saves the day because he opens the portal and everyone comes back. Anyway. There's an end to this. There's an ending to this marriage and it is not your marriage. It's not my marriage. It's a marriage between Christ and the church. He is still holding fast to his bride. That's the ending to the story and they will be married. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. That's the ending to the story of our marriage. Here's what God said through prophet Jeremiah, the prophet who laments, right? He said this in chapter three of Jeremiah. Like a wife who commits adultery, Israel has worshiped other gods on every hill and under every green tree. And her faithless sister Judah saw this. She saw that I, I divorced faithless Israel because of her adultery. But that treacherous sister Judah had no fear and now she too has left me, given herself to prostitution. Israel treated it all so lightly. She thought nothing of committing adultery by worshiping idols made of wood and stone. That's the verdict on all of Israel. People of God, the prophet Jeremiah lamenting as if he was expressing God's very own grief and lament over Israel's unfaithfulness and subsequently God divorcing Israel. Here's the initial comfort in that. God knows personally and intimately the pain of going through a divorce. God knows. If that's you, if you're on the other side of that, if you know people who are on the other side of that, you have to understand God can comfort them. God is out to comfort them before God's out to judge them. He can comfort them for that. I'm not saying you should tell this to people who are considering divorce or struggling through a marriage. This is the aftermath we're talking about here, right? God himself, right, rightfully, due to Israel's adultery, their unfaithfulness divorced Israel. But you know what, God, he doesn't stop there. Just a few verses down after that, God says this to his prophet, therefore, therefore, right, they cheated on me, we got divorced, therefore, go and give this message to Israel. This is what the Lord says, O Israel, my faithless people, come home to me again. Come home to me again, for I am merciful. I will not be angry with you forever. Acknowledge your guilt. Admit that you've rebelled against the Lord your God and committed adultery against him by worshiping idols under every green tree. Confess that you refuse to listen to my voice. I, the Lord, have spoken. Return home. That's the prophecy given to Jeremiah. Even through the lament, the lament, the grief, and the mourning through that divorce between God and Israel, there's a thread of hope. What is that? God is calling them home. God will be merciful to them. See, God is a redeeming God. Our story doesn't end with us, it ends with him. It ends with his redemption. He restores everything that was broken for those who are wedded, engaged to be the Lord's, as our catechism says. And how does he do that? How does he secure this relationship for us through the greatest prophet ever sent to us, his son, Jesus Christ, who bore the grief and lament of God on the cross. 
The gospel is this. God didn't send Jesus into the world to divorce us, but to reconcile us. To reconcile us to himself. And that means for all of us who have committed adultery and have gone through the spiritual pain of being divorced from God. And I think sometimes our Christian brothers who or sisters who've gone through a divorce, sometimes they are the ones who understand the true power in this, this hope of this ultimate marriage between God and the church. For us, we have to hope in this. Whether you are currently unhappily married, whether you will be married, never will be married, was once married before, wherever you are, you will get to partake of this final and ultimate wedding that is going to last forever. That's the ending to your story. In fact, the Bible ends with a wedding. Did you know that in the book of Revelation? The Bible ends with a wedding. And at the wedding, it says, all the people of God will be dressed in fine linen, white and pure, sinless, righteous, perfect. And this people of God, this bride of Christ will be the pride of God, perfectly beautiful without blemish perfectly faithful in his eyes, lovely in his eyes. How? Because of Christ. Because he has pursued us while we were still sinners. He was faithful while we were faithless and he died on the cross for our sins. He will hold fast to us because he has through his life, his death, his resurrection. Hope in that and rest in this gospel. Know that you have, if you have the love of Christ, if you have the love of Christ and nothing else, no husband, no wife, no happy marriage, nothing else, but you have the love of Christ, you will have everything restored unto you on that day, the day of your final wedding, the ultimate wedding. Everything that was lost to you, that was broken in your life will be restored. And the, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you will say with me, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. God, we, we ask for your, your comfort, your encouragement, and your strength to live out this um, very difficult teaching you've given us. Lord, we are little children. We, we struggle through this life, this walk, this path that you pay for us. And we find ourselves a lot of times at the end of ourselves, and we really don't have a way out of it. We, we really don't see an answer to tomorrow. But God, we thank you that it is that moment, it is in that very moment that you turn our eyes, you refocus our eyes to your son, his story. And that our marriage doesn't end with us, it ends with him, his story. And that we can be united with him. United with him now until then. Give us this faith. Strengthen us, Lord, whether we are single, married, have been married. Lord, our lives are not in our hands. It's in yours. Our story is not, it's not something that we want you to simply enter into and, 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 and accustom yourself to, but we want to enter yours and, and adapt ourselves to your story, align ourselves to your, your beautiful story of how you have reconciled sinners to yourself. Help us to believe that and hope in that and walk together in that and help our church to be an encouragement, source of encouragement to one another. And may we not turn to one spouse.
for what we should be drawing from one village of church people and brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us the wisdom and the humility to, to reach out for accountability, for community, for confession, for encouragement, for prayer, for help, for counsel, for teaching, for instructions. Lord, accustom us to the life of the church. We thank you that you've given us that here. May we receive it. May we receive it gladly. May we live in it with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.